It's lovely to be back with you in, in, in Windsor. I have just so many friends here. And, well, really, to take you out into the wilderness, that's, that's a delight. I should have told you, and I hope you brought boots, water, and a hat, because it'll be hot. But, you know, the older I get, and the more I kind of read the Bible, I discover every time it's like going back to school you discover there's just so little, in a sense, that we know, and there's just such depth to this book. I love what, there was a medieval nun, Mechteg of Magdeburg, obviously not Nahochel woman, but she used to say, every time we study the scripture, it's like a honeybee dipping its knee into a honeypot, and we carry away as much as that bee would carry on its knee. Well, I'm not the bee's knees, but when you think about it, it does. Well, it creates that spirit kind of of humility. And I find constantly this challenge to go back to the beginning. To discover really the roots of our faith and journey that, well, that road that brings us from Genesis through to Revelation, the road that's not finished yet. Our invitation is well, to join this great unfolding drama of God acting in history. Eugene Peterson put it so well when he said, salvation isn't a one-night stand with Jesus, but it's been drawn into the rich texture and fabric of what God is doing in history and what is yet to do. And that's why we've got to take the whole roadway seriously. You begin in Genesis on a journey that's going to lead you right through the Hebrew Bible, the ups and downs of God's relationship with Israel, then through that period inaugurated by Jesus, the beginning of the end, a period that we're still living in, in a sense, and it will be climaxed when Jesus returns. But there is so much for us to learn when we go back to the beginning. And when we go back, really, to those opening five books of Scripture called Torah, so dreadfully and unfortunately translated law. When I think of law, law is a freckled face, PSNI uniform, steps out at Antrim Forum. I was only doing 49, sir. I really was. It's only 49. But you see, law's there to catch you when you do wrong. And we built in this kind of impression. We translate the law of the Lord. And it really is an unfortunate translation because that word Torah comes from a word meaning guidance, direction, teaching. A modern Israeli teacher, well, her name is derived from this word Torah. She is a mora. The verb behind it meant to fire an arrow, to give it direction, to put it on target. And so when you take a child's life and you put them on target, you teach them. And that's precisely what you see God was doing with Israel. To take a people, his intention to put them on target so that the world would have a witness to his truth. And that's the story of his wrestling with Israel. It's a story that's going to take you well. In fact, you can't really appreciate that story unless you're prepared to put on your hiking boots. There's no way you can really read the Bible and appreciate it just by sitting in an armchair. 
You've got to get up and see that God's revelation is inextricably tied to both history and to geography. And when you take time to, in a sense, walk the Bible, and you discover particularly these opening books, you think of this drama of, of Genesis, where you're starting with Abraham down in the depths of the Mesopotamian Valley. By the end of Genesis, you have traveled into the Promised Land, and famine has driven you out of the Promised Land, down into Egypt, seeking, seeking refuge. And exiles then become slaves. And God intrudes into history in what we call the Exodus to set these people free, that great prototypical intrusion of God into history through the man of his choice, to bring them then to himself at Mount Sinai, and there enter into covenant, a marriage, a relationship of mutuality, of intimacy, of, of, of reciprocity, and of love and of passion. That's at the heart of the book of Leviticus. I don't know when you last got excited about Leviticus. It's incredible the number of Christians that don't. But there in Leviticus, God's exploring the nature of his relationship before he takes them, and this is where we're going over the next three weeks, out into the wilderness. That's the story of the book of Numbers, which is, of course, going to bring us up to the east bank of the River Jordan and the entry back into the promised land. You get the journey when you think about it. That anti-clockwise movement, do you see how the text is inextricably tied to the journey? When you are reading the text, you are on the journey that's going to bring you right back up to where we started, to the east bank of the River Jordan again. And you re-enter and the story continues with Joshua. But how do we get there? You see, there's no shortcuts. You've got to walk the story. There are absolutely no fast tracks. You've got to walk it. And that's what we want to try to do, just to get a feel for it. Because as we enter this world, and as we begin to explore the world of, of Exodus, this is a book that's still of such crucial importance even to us as Christians, because it's that book that lays out for us really the foundations of how God works. Here you are introduced to the divine modus operandi. This is how he works. You begin to see, look how he operates, raising up the man of his choice to intrude into a desperate situation, to confront a totalitarian, destructive, dehumanizing, depersonalizing force, to liberate people by bringing them through the water, bringing them through an experience of death and through waters so that he who redeems them would then rule over them. You begin to see how timeless that story is as you're introduced to it in the book of Exodus, where God intrudes into that situation, where he brings them from Egypt, and he brings them out into the Sinai Peninsula. He's bringing them literally, as it were, from Pharaoh's domain into God's domain. And God's domain, it seems to have been deliberately chosen because this is no man's land. 
And if you walk it today, you'll get that sense. This is really no man's land. But it's as if God, through even the geography, is saying something. I am bringing you from the domain of Pharaoh. I'm bringing you into an area where there is no human rule. And you are going to discover what it means to be my people. What had happened under Pharaoh? It had been a regime of slavery. It was dehumanizing. You were really kind of units of productivity. But now, what am I doing? I am bringing you under an entirely new regime. Because you begin to see, actually, the elements even of the kingdom emerge here in, in, in Exodus. What's very, very striking in rabbinic tradition, actually, they say that the first intrusion of the kingdom of God is in the book of Exodus. Because if you notice the great celebratory song in Exodus 15, which is of incredible interest, of course, to every Christian, because Revelation 15 tells us that the saints will be singing the song of Moses that will be transformed into the song of the Lamb. So this is why this is a timeless song. And as we read that song, how does it end? And the Lord will reign forever and ever. In other words, we see the kingdom of God coming when we see God in action. And that's precisely what the Exodus was about. It was about the eternal kingship of the God of the Exodus bursting in to establish his rule and his reign in the face of the illusory grandeur and maglomania of the Pharaoh. God had come to claim his people. And it's that journey that is so incredibly significant. That's the story. And that, to us, becomes the prototype second only in significance to what was to be accomplished through a greater than Moses, through Jesus himself. So this provides the background. When you think about it, what was the only way out of Egypt? When you stand on the shores of the Red Sea, can you imagine what it was like? It's easy. We have a several thousand years now to kind of sanitize this, domesticate it. Oh, God brought them out across the Red Sea. Halfway across, there was an ATM. They could top up. It was asphalt all the way. Can you imagine what it was like following the one of God's choice into the unknown? Because whether you're reading the Gospels or you're reading the book of Exodus, fundamentally you are in the same situation of having to follow the one of God's choice into the unknown. I keep a little postcard that a student gave me many, many years ago, and I keep it in my study, and it shows the waters opening up, opened up, a little guy who's obviously Moses is standing, another little fellow standing to his side. He's tugging at Moses' coat and he's pointing out. And he says, Moses, it's muddy. It's muddy. See, we can so sanitize it. 
We can turn the Bible into kind of a children's storybook where it's all nice. There must have been mud on their feet when they crossed that water, crossed that, that open passageway. Has it ever been easy to follow the one of God's choice? And yet, you see, what they were stepping out to, well, to this very day, actually, in the synagogue on the Shabbat, when they read their Sabbath prayers, they pray, your sons saw your kingdom as you split the Red Sea before Moses. You see, the kingdom is not about a sort of a geopolitical or social unit. The kingdom's not about the flag you fly or the traditional roots that you bound it by. The kingdom is about kingship. It's about coming under the rule of God. And even here in the book of Exodus, you see it's the fundamental story of how God, of how Yahweh, we don't even know quite how to pronounce his name, but how he would become king over against, well, a pharaoh. Pharaoh, who's one of those that, remember Annie Dillard, the American literary figure, she talks about humanity being arrogant little squatters in the face of the earth. Well, this is one little arrogant squatter in the face of the earth who set himself up as God and thought he would rule these people. So you see, the Exodus is the story of liberation, that God would intrude into history to redeem a people that he in turn would then rule. You see, this is about coming under his rule, under his kingship, under his dominion, under his sovereignty. And when we grasp this, well, Desi Alexander, who teaches just down the road here, put it so well, where he says the story of the Exodus, you see, it's about moving from one kingdom to another, about escaping corrupt human kingship, experiencing loving divine kingship. It's about becoming priest kings and entering into God's sanctuary where he would reign forever. This is the story of the Exodus. You see, it's the story about a God acting in the man of his choice to confront this power to set these people free that God might rule over them. You see the striking analogy? Because isn't this the kindergarten curriculum for what we find in postgraduate school in the Gospels? when a greater than Moses would intrude into history, be raised from the dead to create a people whom he would rule over. So when we grasp this and we readily acknowledge the significance of the Exodus in our Christian circles, but then we don't go on. We tend to major on the salvation part but what follows when God leads these people into no man's land to make them disciples? He had brought them out of Egypt. How was he going to get Egypt out of them? You see, when you get this naive, superficial evangelicalism that goes around today that degenerates salvation into a one-night stand with Jesus that somehow or another will kick in in the sweet by and by, we totally neglect so much of the teaching. 
when you come to see that this God redeemed so that he would rule. This God redeemed so that he would reign over the lives of the people he had set free. So let me suggest to you, you see, that's why he took them into the wilderness. He took them into no man's land so that they would hear his voice. Let me suggest to you a number of reasons why the wilderness is so significant. And as we look at Israel's history, well, this is why we can learn even for our own situation. See, the the wilderness was, above all, a place to listen. In the Hebrew Bible, it's not called Numbers. Numbers was a name that was given to it at about two centuries before Jesus. There was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and they gave the names of the books. Well, they're Greek names, really. But in the original text, this, first, this book is called, as traditionally in the Hebrew Bible, a book takes its name from the first major word in the text. So this book is called literally, In the Wilderness, Ba Midbar. And if you look at the book of Numbers, there's the very first word in the text, in the wilderness. Now, we're not not looking at Hebrew to be smart. That's not how we operate. But I want to show you something we can't simply see in English. The Hebrew word for wilderness is midbar. The background here is actually, it is a graphically created a set of contours to represent a wilderness terrain. There's an Israeli graphic artist, Ariel Malka. You can visit his site. It's called Chronotext. Very clever in that he has created biblical landscapes over which in real time the biblical text in any language can actually be made to flow. So he's got the Hebrew text of the book of Numbers here reflecting the contours. Now, the Midbar, Midbar is the wilderness, not the desert. The desert's the place of the camel. The wilderness is the place of the horse. Ba Midbar is literally in the wilderness. Now, this is where, bear in mind, Hebrew's a consonantal language. If we went up the Somerton Road this evening and we were uh, able to see the Torah scrolls, there's not a vowel in sight. Can you imagine reading the Belfast Telegraph and no vowels? So-and-so's R-D. Are they red? Are they rude? Are they arid? What are they? It's the, the context that determines the vowels you add. So the ancient interpreters, they loved to study the consonants. And what you see in the word you see midbar, you actually see the skeleton of another word because there is another word, dabar, which is the Hebrew word for word. So the rabbis would say, you see, the midbar is the place God took Israel to hear the dabar. Israel took his, sorry, God took his people into the wilderness so there would be no interference. There would be no extraneous sound. 
It would be there in the silence that's virtually palpable. It would be in this silence they would hear, not a cacophony of human voices, but that they would hear the Word of God. And they would learn to live by that Word. Incidentally, doesn't this make perfect sense when you come to study what happened to Jesus? Do you remember at the time of his temptation when he was taken to the high point in the city? And you have heard, I'm sure like me, countless Western preachers, that dirty dog, the devil, came to Jesus when he was at his weakest. He had been 40 days in the wilderness. He was most vulnerable. I don't doubt physically he was. 40 days fast would leave any of us weak. But is there not another sense in which Jesus never had been stronger? Because he had been 40 years in the Midbar, where he had learned what Israel had not learned, that man shall live by every dabar that comes from the mouth of God. And is it accidental that Jesus countered every temptation of Satan by quoting Deuteronomy? Jesus was so saturated by the Word of God that gave him such strength he could then face head-on the temptation that was coming because he had been saturated in the Word of God and discovered man shall not live by stuff, by things alone, but by every word that comes from you know, the mouth of God. The wilderness, that is the place where there was no, no extra temptations. I lead study tours to the, to the wilderness every year or so. And one little lady at the end of, of the tour complains so bitterly. He never lets us in the shops. There are no shops. The wilderness is a place, you see, where the tourist trade can't take over. There are no churches even. There are no church buildings. It is the place where there is virtually nothing between you and the ancient text and the ancient world. You hear God as never before because the extraneous, the interference is taken away. It's a place to listen. A lost art in our modern world. It's also a place to walk I mean, when you come to the face the wilderness, you've got to ask a fundamental question. How did Israel get out of Egypt? And when we see the drama of God's intervention, the miraculous side of it, no question about that. But in the midst of all of that, isn't it so interesting? They walked. The only way out of Egypt was to walk. And as God redeemed these people, as he saved these people, isn't it a fundamental interest that he saved these people to go forth with him, not to go up? How is it so many Christians today, when you listen to them, oh, I'm saved, can't wait to get away. Can't wait to go up. There's the rocket launch. And we neglect the fact that when God redeems, he redeems his people to go forth, not to primarily go up. Well, that's not taking away, of course, from his promises and the glory to come. Of course not. 
But these people were redeemed that they would step out and they would go forth. And what was the only way to go forth? They had to, you know, there were no short circuits. There was no fast track. There was only one way through the wilderness. And they had to walk. Do you ever notice it? If you have your Bible handy, look at the beginning of the book of Numbers. And my daughters keep reminding me, Dad, don't be a Luddite. There may be some following you on an iPad now or a, an iPhone. So if you're following on a phone, you do this and get your neighbor to look up the second bit because I want you to keep it open at the first bit as well. Look at Numbers chapter 1. Isn't it very striking? Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses at the tent of meeting. Now, do you see where you are? In, on the first day of the second month, in the desert of Sinai. Of the, uh, in the second month of the year, second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And they were told to take a census. Now, I want you then to turn to the very last verse in Numbers. Chapter 36 at verse 13. Now, where are you? These are the commands and the regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Now you see, the pin marks the spot. Numbers begins at Sinai. It ends on the east bank of the River Jordan. How did they get there? There really isn't a fast-track option. They had to walk. Isn't that striking too? Where God is fulfilling his promises, his people are walking. His people are on a journey. It's not like that parody of a friend in Dublin, Trevor Morrow, some of you will know him, who has the little parody, like a mighty tortoise moved the church of God. Brothers, we are trodding where we've always trod. No, you see, where God's people are following his promises, maybe not physically, they're, they're not physically leaving the area they're, they're living in, but they're on a spiritual journey. See, this is why I call the book of Numbers God's Yellow Pages. Because literally, as you read Numbers, you can let your fingers do the walking. And as you let your fingers do the walking, you are following the history, you see, the unfolding drama of God's promises. And how does God bring these people out of Egypt? They walk. Isn't there something incredibly mundane and something very ordinary, something literally very down to earth about it. But God's people on this path of redemptive history, journeying towards the fulfillment of God's promises, walk. There's no glitz, there's no glamour, there are no fast track programs. They did something as ordinary, as quotidian as mundane as walking.
You see, we bought in so much to this kind of God in the box that it's not real Christianity unless it's thrill a minute. Miracle a moment. God's not really working unless it's a mega tent with a mega name and a great mega miracle. And we become a community sometimes of voyeurs rather than walkers. God's asked us to walk out this truth. And when you look at where he took Israel, when you walk the wilderness, it's a scary place. No wonder they say it's a bone voyage. I learned French in Balamina from an Ahochel woman, so even my French is not great, but it is. It's bone shattering to travel through the wilderness, especially if you're in a four-wheel driver and you're the back of a camel. It is bone shattering because it is a scary place. There are no 24-hour seven shops. You are dependent on God. You are surrounded by that which threatens you. You learn the value of the most ordinary things, water. You begin to understand what shade means. You begin to understand the protection from the sun by night, sun by day, and the moon by night. It's a dangerous place. You feel so incredibly small and vulnerable. And there's where God took Israel. It's when you're in the wilderness, suddenly the psalmist and his metaphors all come to life. When you walk in a valley of the shadow and you feel so susceptible, when you feel overawed, God took them out into the wilderness so that they would learn in one sense how big he is and how small they are, and yet how God would provide for them. You see, it's a place to learn to walk. And no wonder, you see, Paul says when he was writing to the church at Corinth, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, where he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers, isn't that interesting language? Paul writing to Gentile Christians, and he says, our forefathers. In other words, when we study the Hebrew Bible, it's our family album. Our fathers were all under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. We'll come to look about this uh, in another week. But these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts in evil things as they did. This is a, it's like a kindergarten. And we can keep going back to learn lessons that even in postgraduate school, are still valid. So it's a place to learn to walk with God, to learn dependence, to know what it means to feel vulnerable, to feel scared, and to discover God is there. No wonder the rabbis used to say, when you are in trouble, don't expect a miracle. But read the Psalms, and there you discover God with his people paradoxically, counterintuitively, in the trouble, not by lifting them out of it. And I'd submit to you that walking with Jesus is no different. We've got to learn to walk, and we've got to learn to listen. And we've got to learn 
to serve. You see, this was above all a place to serve. This is where it strikes me at the most radical. See, when you look at the place of the wilderness, it literally is a no man's land. What is very, very striking is that exactly the same verb that's used of serving Pharaoh is used of serving God. Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, isn't that very striking? Because under Pharaoh, it was life, soul, destroying servitude. It was bondage. But under God, it's a profoundly grateful response to liberation. It's not working for anything, but working out that which is a gift of God. And behind that word, there's, the, there, there's a fascinating idea that we have lost in English. See, in English, we have kind of, well, because we've post-enlightenment, we, we have bought into, I mean, I used to have a teacher who said to me, Maxwell, I'd love to see your brain in a saucer, son. In terms of literature, you are intellectually constipated. And she said, now, if you saw your brain in a saucer, Tell me this now. Would it really think a little bit more? How much more would it think like Plato or Socrates? Or would it think like a Paul or a Moses or a Jesus? Have we even stopped to think about how we think in the West? We've taken it for granted. And it's no fault of our own where we've been born. We've been, you know, we bought into a post-enlightenment educational system. It goes back to the Renaissance, and the Renaissance right back, ad fontes, to its roots, the early Greeks. We don't stop to think there is a Hebraic way, there is a biblical way that's radically different from that Greek dualism. We take it for granted that you separate the spiritual from the physical, from the professional and the public. Very striking. You hear that kind of Greek thinking every time a politician's caught with his trousers down. Oh, what he does in his private life doesn't impact his public responsibilities. That's pure dualism. Interestingly, in biblical Hebrew, there is one word, avodah. It's derived from that verb of serving Pharaoh or serving God. One word that uncovers where we have a word for work, and we have a word for worship. The Bible is one word that you see covers both. Avodah. It's a call to service. Remember the words of Moses to Pharaoh, let these people go that they may serve. They may serve me. And where was he going to teach them about service? In the wilderness. In the midbar. There wasn't an institution in sight. There wasn't an organization in sight. They all have their place and they're necessary. But fundamentally, they were going to learn how to relate to God. And they were going to serve him in the wilderness. That word avodah is a fascinating one. And not so long ago, a friend took me on a kind of a guided tour through a working kibbutz. And we got into the laundry. 
And as we get into the laundry, well, you know, I do not have a good sense of smell, but boy, it struck me as quite pungent. We went past the bin that housed the work clothes, especially those who'd been working with the farm, on the farm. And it's interesting, this big bin, it was a huge bin. It was called G'day Avodah. That's the word, Avodah. That's the work clothes. You see, those are the clothes you wear in the course of everyday service. Those are the clothes you wear when you're studying, you're operating, when you're painting, when you're mechanicing, no matter what you're doing, the clothes of service. There is no dualistic division between my spiritual life and my professional life. God is calling us to life of service. And for God's people, you see, there's more to service than going to services. For God's people, after the time of worship together on a Sunday, the service goes on. In every day, whether God's put a scalpel, a wrench, a brush, a pencil, a keyboard, no matter what he's put to our hands. And you see, they had to learn that in the wilderness. Because God took away all the structures. He brought them to the basic reality of what lay at the very heart. Redemption was to bring a people into the service of the one who served, the one who would invite them to perfect freedom. I think that's often where our Protestant paradigm needs, needs to be examined. We've got so neurotic about works. We're dead afraid and baby bath and water have all been thrown out. Anything to do with work. <laughs> we forget actually God called the people to give them something they could never work for so that then on a journey under his rule they would work out and they'd wear whether it be the soldier's armor, the servant's apron, the bride's garment, you see, it's multidimensional, the clothes that he gives, that his people would live in his service. So when we come to the wilderness, no wonder the first president of Israel said this of the wilderness. It is in the Negev that the creativity and the pioneer vigor of Israel shall be tested. That was written in a kind of a more political context. But it's something the Apostle Paul would well have agreed with and what the New Testament would agree. It's in the wilderness. We learn so much from the example of those who've gone before. In the wilderness, God tests, God builds, God develops a people who passionately want to journey with him to the fulfillment of promises. We'll go back out into the wilderness next week. But let's pray. Lord, will you remind us, you want to walk with us in this journey. And where it's tough, where it's difficult, where the heat is real, may we find a new shade. May we find you are our guide, our provider. You are our Lord. And may we serve you with every aspect of our life through Jesus, who returned from the wilderness so strong, 
so marinated with your word. May we live by that word, and may we live by it alone. In the name of the word that became incarnate, 